Hello, and welcome to Weathering the Storm, stories of climate crises across North America. This series is part of the Community Podcast Initiative in partnership with the Climate Disaster Project. We're your hosts, Shawanda Backfat, and I'm Amy Osnes. And in today's episode, we will be discussing Alberta's flood in 2013 and the communities affected. The Bow River is 587 kilometers in length and flows from the mountains in Banff down through the prairies, supplying water for hydroelectricity, irrigation, municipal and industrial uses. During the summer of 2013, heavy, continuous rainfall caused the river levels to rise, resulting in a flood that left the province of Alberta with over $5 billion worth of damage. A devastating flood, Albertans are reminded of the event and the damage it caused for communities such as High River and Bright Creek. But often forgotten in discussion is damage that this flood caused for families living throughout Alberta's Blackfoot Reservation. Siksika Nation, a reservation located an hour east of Calgary, lost approximately three homes during the flood in 2013. Destroyed beyond repair, Siksika families directly affected by the flood were displaced and for some time almost forgotten. In today's episode, we will be learning about the Siksika flood from two different angles. Warren Drunken Chief, a Siksika housing coordinator, will discuss how his family was affected and the complexities the nation faced in dealing with the flood. We will be also talking to Giselle Smith, a registered nurse and Siksika's former public health team leader, who shares how the nation managed the crisis. And now, here's my interview with Warren Drunken Chief. So, Warren, uh, can you tell me about who you are? So, my name is Warren Drunken Chief. I'm from Six Guy Nation, and I re- currently work for Six Guy Nation Housing. So, at the time, 2013, uh, 16, I happened to be one of the uh, homeowners that lost his home completely to the flood. Can you tell me a bit about who you were growing up? I was a Six Guy Nation member. Grew up on the east side. They called our valley Little Washington. That's on the east side of Sikaga Nation, closer to Bazano. And uh, that's where I grew up on the nation through my education, my elementary, junior high, and high school. Then eventually moved away for a bit there, then, then eventually came back home. Warren tells me about his career and his home life. Yeah, before the flood, I've been in construction now for... 40 years, so it's been a long journey. So that's what I'm still doing is in construction. That's prior, and then after the flood, I became a leader for three years, politics 2013 to 2016. And then I stepped down, and then I came back to work for the housing again, for the nation. Other than work, I was a family man, and a beautiful wife, and we have eight kids, and we had at the time, I think, four grandchildren. We just live in life, you know, we live off the land, we hunt, we fish, we play sports in the backyard, and just enjoy life, and work around the house, cut grass, sliding, so that's how it's been, I guess. So busy. Yeah. So at the time of the flood, your kids were all grown up, or were any still in the house? Yeah. I actually, during the flood, I had Matthew, Matthew, Isaac, and Buck. They were all underage, all under 18. Can you tell me what Siksika was like before the flood? Yeah, Siksika Nation had its own areas. We have our own areas, like uh, we call Little Chicago. We call South Camp, Washington, Little Washington. We had North Camp, 
Muskrat Village, West End, East End. So that's how Six God Nation is. It's comprised of a lot of communities. Porigo Flats, Crowfoot near Bazana. Uh, quite a few, about four communities for sure, are along the Bow River. Little Washington, South Camp, Porigo Flats, and Chicago. Mostly those four are along the Bow River. And so where were you when the flood happened? Yeah, when the flood happened, I was at home because I got warned that I should be home, you know, getting ready, prepared, if anything was to happen. And we were actually just in a room watching news. We kept driving back and forth to the bridge, which is about two miles away from our house, just to watch the Bow River as it rose. But we were thinking that it's going to rise. It won't It won't hit us because we were far away from the Bow River. But we're still in the valley, so our automatic thinking was there's no way it's going to hit us. Yeah, we were just relaxing, watching TV, and boom, next thing you know, we got our neighbor knocking. The water busts through this one area, and the water's going to eventually hit yours. So sure enough, later on that evening, we packed what we could, and boom, we got hit with the flood. Wow. Okay. So it definitely wasn't an expected thing for you. No, not at all. Because just because of where we're located, just below the hill, and then you go further down, kind of a higher elevation, and the Bow River's like a lot lower. So in the past, it's never hit that area. It's never flooded that area. So it flooded the ones along the Bow River before, maybe twice, and then people had backups in their sewer. But this was the ultimate, and it took all the houses right below the hill up to mine, and then the full community of Washington. That's how that ended up with the flood. How many other communities, was it just mainly Washington, or were there other communities within that also were affected? I believe there was 144 homes hit that lost their homes. So it was funny how the flood did the damage because some houses got washed out. And then the ones that got flooded into their basements up to the main floor, by the time you got back, the power was out, the electricity, there was no heat, of course, nothing going on in these houses. So after everyone evacuated, the people also got affected because of the mold that sat in. Obviously, the health concerns, which is hepatitis C from the sewer, sewer backup, and all that kinds of strain of hepatitis, different sorts of health, I guess, health viruses that can hurt us as a family or as a human. So that's what happened. And there was, like I said, four communities for sure. And then it just spread from there. So do you know roughly how many people then had to completely evacuate? Yeah, from what I understand, there was, I could remember, there was over 800 over 800 the population. That included the north side of the Bow River and the south side of the Bow River. At least I think it was over 800, if I'm not mistaken. And did all of those people lose their homes completely? Yeah, not like the main ones that were got hit from the bottom got lost theirs. And then there was some that got evacuated just because they ran out of power too. So their homes got affected, but they were on the hill. There was no water damage. But some of the water actually did sewer damage. So sewer backup with the units that were on the hills. So there was a lot of them that lost their homes. And then of course, the assessment came after when they were able to determine which houses were damaged, which were condemned and all that kind of stuff. Who could go back home and just a whole bunch of stuff that was, it was just crazy at the time. I bet, like so many different processes to go through. And so when did you find out about your home that it was a loss? Yeah, well, I happened to have, I'd say, 
from ground level to that heel. That's, it's like the first flat in the area where we camp. And I'd say it's about 30 feet high from ground level. And we still had about five feet to spare when the water went by. So it was really close. But we managed to jump up there, stay on the heel. We got our tents. We had a trailer. We have an RV trailer. We managed to pull up there. We have one truck. And then all the donations came in, you know, for tents. So we were able to watch that flood all evening and just watch our house get damaged. And we were able to watch it all night. Nobody slept. And then we were able to see all the animals, the moose running through the floods, drowning. Some of them made it. Some of them didn't. So it was quite the sight. So we were able to see that right from the start, right to the finish. Yeah, the next day we had... We had these great big white swans that were just, you know, in a place they've never been, right? That was kind of uh, comical that next morning. Wow. So I told Holly, take a look at the uh, swans, you know, just outside our backyard along the hill. That was weird, but they enjoyed the water, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so we seen everything. So it just took a day and that's it. It was, we lost everything. Yeah. How did that make you feel? <laughs> Well, for me, I'm kind of the leader of the family, so I always showed, I guess, my tough side. You know, I showed my strength that I'm there for my wife and my kids. But it was hard for them because they lost everything. And I lost everything, but I was there more mainly for my wife and my kids. And, and then as the you know, next few days, the water slowly receded within those seven days. That's when it was even got harder because you're, you were able to step into your home and there was no security around and take a peek and how much damage it took, you know, the mud and the filth. And that really hurt a lot though. It was, uh, it was traumatizing for sure. It's a bad memory because I think mostly everyone has really had a lot of keepsakes, you know, a lot of heirlooms that we've really took care of all these years just for it to get washed away in one day. You know, there was a lot of, my late wife had uh, her grandpa's stuff from the war that was paper that didn't make it, certificates, some old pictures, stuff like that. I had traditional stuff that I lost like feathers and medicines a whole other stuff that belonged to our tradition that I lost. It's going to come back eventually, but that stuff I had for years and probably came from my grandmother, grandfather's that was passed down. So that was traumatizing. It was tough for sure. But it was just as tough to see my late wife cry and cry and cry. That was sad. And she wasn't the only one crying. There was the kids. And you look over, the neighbors were crying. Everybody was crying. So it was really a sad moment. When we all got evacuated to the one area, the uh, sportsplex, I walked in and I had, a, I had an out-of-body experience because everybody felt the same thing at that very moment. They were lost. They were hungry. They were sad. They were angry. So having all those feelings at the same time, it seemed like everyone froze when I was looking at everybody for maybe a couple of minutes. And everybody froze in there, wherever, whatever they were doing. And I was looking around. It was, it was really weird. But I've never seen that much connection before with a whole bunch of people. And we all had that same feeling. And I think that's what it was, was to recognize it. Because everybody felt the same way. Sad, happy, hungry, mad. Definitely. To see everybody cry, though, that was really hard, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, just so much intense emotion from you know, everyone that you know all at once. Can you describe the effect that the flood had on other people you know? Yeah, like, we had, we had a community of... We had the Hidden Valley Resort. From what I understand, there were 
we leased the land and the ones had their cabins uh, that was their second homes but to see they got the worst they got their whole community just washed right out devastating their houses were floating down the river literally getting smashed underneath the bridge and then i think the um that affected them for sure like that was crazy how to see them go through that and um and then from what I hear, the government didn't recognize that as insurance or uh, they couldn't get any funding back because there were second homes, wasn't their main home. So some of them lost out, but I'm pretty sure they got covered though by their insurance. So in other areas, um, like for instance, we camped for three months on the hill camping. Um, it was just like if you have a barbecue, people would bring a few drinks, but it was like a barbecue every night we had. It was in the open summer, we had open skies, you know, we had um, people donating hot dogs, meat, pastry, and then of course the ones that were under the influence were able to get themselves alcohol. So a lot of them that were affected that way, a lot of them want to give up too though, so a lot of them I think pretty well want to give up on their lives because they lost everything. So there was numerous attempts of, I would say, suicide. Other ways that they were affected was some families couldn't live with each other for the first time. So a lot of them would fight each other, and, but they have nowhere to go. They'd have to stay there because there was nowhere to go. So, and that's how they were affected. And then the flip side for me, I was really happy enjoying myself. That was crazy because I was able to to see my brother every day. We're so busy working, I've never seen him. And to see my family together every single day, I enjoyed it. Wake up, have a coffee, chop some wood, get ready for the night, and then just make sure we have the right enough food for that day. And um, so that was the happy moments though, when we were all together, despite the immense loss that we took. Others that were affected too were, I think it was a loss of pride, of course. People couldn't face anyone because people took care of their homes, fences, beautiful fences, hard-earned money into their houses, and just lost everything. So you see people walking around. The best way to describe that event for me was walking in the moccasins of our ancestors because we were all suffering, we were all sad, hungry, lost, and that's how we all felt. That's just probably about the time when we lost our buffalo. Was, that's how we felt then. We had nothing to grab onto at the moment. So that's how everybody was affected pretty well. So some survived and some were able to help others. And then uh, I guess the, the ones that had interest, like to assist the people, they rose under pressure and were able to come to the top. And then they were able to begin the adv advocacy for the people, for the nation, and speak on their behalf. The ones that just really can't speak for themselves. So these ones rose. There was a lot of leaders that came up out of it. And that's what that flood bring out too, was true leadership through the nation. So that's how some of them were affected. Some people used it as a stepping stone to, you know, to assist the people, which was good in that sense. Right. So through the disaster, strength could be found. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you managed to find moments of joy within it as well. Yeah. And so how did the flood make you feel about climate change? Wow, climate change. I guess I was able to, I was very fortunate to be with housing because we were able to go into in-depth sessions on water, you know, how to measure water, the environmentalists stepping in, you know, so we had different areas that uh, worked for the government were able to 
to teach us how climate change has affected us. And a lot of them had to do with water. And um, and then there's so many dams that like we probably could have saved that area where we're not ready for any disasters. Our peace plans, if there was any, is completely failed. So they wanted to like climate change itself to see things de Like right now there's, there's more homes than land. So we're losing our animals for one thing. So in that sense too, that was part of the climate change. We had hotter days than rainy days, drier seasons. This past year we had a whole bunch of flies. Flies were really big. And then the one year we had millions of magpies that were dead on the road. That was all due to climate change too. They couldn't handle the heat or they got some sort of virus that happened to them. Climate change during the flood, I think we understood how that how the rain got caught up in the mountains. We, they had heavy snow up there for it to, to begin flooding. Oh, I mean, if that was a fact, like I said, it's never flooded in my area and where the house is not lost it. So definitely something going on. So it just kind of made it more real, I guess. Yes, yeah. So can you describe help you received during the flood? Yeah, the assistance. Well, first it just started personal, right? Your friends chipped in. The ones that didn't get affected, they come by, bring a box of food, whether it was bread. Those were like uh, happy days. Open this friend. I wonder what we're getting today, right? Hot dogs, uh, steak, macaroni, then goodies for the kids. And then from there, that's when the leadership rose from the community. They started calling out for community advocacy, meaning people to represent we need two people from each community to come together and start planning what has to happen. It was a voting system, so they put names down, and I got voted. I was one of them that got voted for Little Washington. So we were able to sit in those meetings with chief and council, which is the highest political level in in uh, on the nation. So we were able to have these flood meetings. Anything with the flood, they were part of it. This way they can write, if they had to write BCRs or motions, we would write them and we'd send it to them. They would get it all written out properly and then they would pass these motions. They would say, we're gonna take a million dollars out of the kids trust fund so we could utilize it for tents or generators, stuff like that. That's where the help started there. And then the negotiating started with the leadership and they signed the MOU with Alberta. Alberta was going to shut the door, but I'm pretty sure the feds told Alberta, we're going to give this to you, so take care of Sixiga and any other band. Because they're federal jurisdiction, and Alberta is provincial, obviously, so there's no funding from the Alberta for us. Mr. Campbell came in, Robin Campbell. He was the Minister of Indigenous Affairs. He came down to Blackford Cross and he spoke and he said, every Siksiga Nation member that lost their home will receive $350,000 in return to build their new house. That was the province. And then he said, at that time it was Premier Redford, I believe. And then she said, you're all Albertans, regardless of these boundaries, the feds and all that. You're Albertans just like the rest of us. And then um, Jim Prentice, I think, was part of it too. Late Jim Prentice. That's when the ball started rolling and then they said, well, let's get an MOU as a guideline so they could work together, a memorandum of agreement, of understanding with Six Sky Nation. And we got to be the author of it. We got to write in what we needed, what comes from here. We control the rights for contractors, you know, who comes in the reserve, who leaves, you know, who's fixing this, who's fixing that. And then we opened the doors to Red Cross. 
Red Cross came in, Good Samaritan's Purse. They were like a Christian group. I believe there was some other churches that came in and that helped. The physical help came in. We had one group doing houses and that, starting to clean up. Then we had the other, the other one still negotiating. How are we gonna help the people? Nobody's working. They lost their vehicles, lost their clothes, lost everything. So what are we gonna do? So, and then the help began, the negotiating, well, let's get these ATCO trailers in, we'll give them a place to stay. But before that, they bring everybody into the hotels. Some were in Bazano, some were in Calgary, and then they slowly started going to Strathmore. Everybody went to, right around Marble area in Calgary, there was that, uh, we called them the Twin Towers. I forget what they're called, but they're a premier hotel now. And they got a total, a bunch of upgrades too in their hotel. And all the rooms were booked for all our people that lost their homes. Get up go have a buffet, free lunch, free supper. That's when all the help started then. For some reason, our family never got a hotel. That was crazy. We never got a hotel from anywhere. And everybody said, yeah, we got a hotel. What? How'd you get a hotel? So there was quite a few of us that got left out. So I said, oh, it's okay. I'll, we're good out here anyway. We'll stay out here. They had centers for showering. And over here, they had a whole bunch of showers there. An Atco trailer just full of showers. And you lined up got your ticket, got to take a shower, stuff like that. They give you a bag of cleaning supplies. And then donations were just crazy. Donation center here, then we got to go through there for clothes, you know, new clothes. We couldn't really take nothing because we had nowhere to store it, so. But then uh, that help included food, clothing, and a lot of organizations got together and then they started going around, who needs tents, tarps, rope, gas, for pain, and they did all that. They were actually driving around, giving us gas, every two days and propane every three days. They made sure we were good in the camping ground. So that was part of the help that was beginning at that time. Warren camps with his family on the hill for months. Atco trailers were brought in for temporary housing, and Warren finally gets his family placed in one. It's a shared accommodation, though, and their roommates do not appreciate the sound of Warren's young boy's feet pattering down the hall. And when we got that trailer, the kids were so excited. They were they started going back to school, and they got excited. They run down the hallway. Mom, Dad, look, I drew this today for you. Mom, Dad, I got, look at this picture. They would do that every day. Oh, gee, I'm so proud of you. You know, just like a parent to a child. Finally, they made a complaint, and the third time, my son ran down, and 11 o'clock at night, minus 17, RCMP came by and they kicked us out of ATCO trailers. Me, my wife, and my boys. We all got kicked out minus 17. Our house, we lost our house in a flood. I told them all, this is their, this is their property. No one understood how happy that boy was running every day to come and say hi. And that was before I got into leadership. My wife asked me, what are we gonna do? I said, well, best thing to do is leave now because they got the RCMP. I don't think any of us wanna get charged for yelling or whatever, so we have to leave. That's what they said. Because we're just home. We're home growing. We like our home. We don't bother nobody. A crisis worker found Warren and his family a hotel room in Strathmore. But again, they run into complications. At that very moment, our kids were going to school. They gave us a nice family suite. And then next thing you know, I heard a whole, about two hockey teams came to stay there. And right across our rooms, there was two doors open and they were just partying and drinking in there, the parents. All the kids were running around. And our kids were in there sleeping, waiting to go to school the next day. The next morning, the manager called me down and said, your kids were running around all night, so we have to let you guys go. Excuse me? They were in my room all night. What are you talking about? 
And these kids were, you know, from those non-native parents were running around all night and they kicked us out. That manager, I told him, well, I can do a lot to you. He said, but that's not the way we are. This is your hotel. You're managing this big, beautiful place. You want us out of here? I'm gone. I teach that to my kids. The minute you step out your door, it's not your property no more. If you're going to get in trouble out there, it's because it's their property. However, there is some rules that they should know too. We have human rights. Whose land you're walking on too. Other people been going through that on the west side getting evicted so I kept sharing this to everybody and then everybody said well you know you should make a change for the people you know get these policies in place so no one will go through that again and sure enough everybody voted me and first thing I did I went to see housing and I said I want to get a motion made up during the flood season no one will be evicted no matter the situation however families must take care of themselves whoever's trying to kick them out just to back off and let them run their own affairs but no one is going to be evicted. And that was my first motion as a leader. As the rebuilding process proved to be slow, Siksika found another source of temporary housing. So we went straight away to uh, Slave Lake there. That whole area burnt. And they had all those trailers there, brand new trailers that were used for the people. They're a disaster. But now they're just sitting there with nobody living in them. Everybody got went back home or whatever. And they were, we went up there to investigate. We had our inspectors look over them. These trailers were beautiful. And Slave Lake said he could take all 144 trailers for $2 million. That was a steal and a half. So we got everything on paper, went to Ottawa. Ottawa's fiscal year is in November. So it was right after November and they came back and they said, we have a surplus in funding. That surplus in funding is dedicated to Six Gun Nation. So that money went right over to Slave Lake to buy all those trailers and paid all the guys to haul them all down, pay for the power, the gas, everything. And then now we have an extra 144 trailers on top of the 144 homes. With our population, we kind of was a, a gift in disguise from the flood, right? Because we ended up with 144 homes on top. Warren explained how his brief role as a housing coordinator became much more than housing. I was housing coordinator during the flood. That was before I got into leadership. So just that very little bit, I was the housing coordinator. And these homeowners came in and, you know, wanted questions. So it was a lineup all the way to come in and see me. But all they did was came in, sat down, and they cried their eyes out. They bawled. I cried. We cried together. Not much was said about their home. Thank you, they left. Next one, still getting ready to talk, break down, cry again. It was literally for two weeks straight, people coming in crying. And people started hearing, hey, you should go see Warren. I heard he's a real nice guy to go, go talk to him. He might help you, maybe spiritually. He can assist you in that area. I felt I was the same boat. They were on that side, I was here, I was working, but I was affected too, just like them. So I was able to understand their wants, their needs, what they were yearning for. I was able to connect with my people. Warren, when did you move back into your house? I got my house and the flood was in 2013. I moved in my house three years now. So that would be 2019. So I was without a house for six years. That's where I ended up. We all ended up with a home eventually. So 2018, 19 people started moving back into their homes. So that was a long five, six years. So is everyone back in a permanent home now? As we speak, everyone's back in their homes. Everyone has been situated in their areas. Some have requested certain areas, got approved. 
a lot went back to the communities that were newly developed. So like the area I was in, they went up the hill now. South Camp went up the hill. The lots went to Clooney. And then this side, everybody got to pick their sites, was able to get their own homes. And then the trailers, some of the kids that were over 18 were able to get into those trailers and get to use them if they took care of the home. So that's how that worked. I think everyone's situated, but now I would call this little talk that we have is it's a good little session for me because it's a, a release. It's a release of stuff that I've been carrying for a while. So what brings you hope for the future? Six of guys are thriving. It's fast. We have some young people coming out of school. We got these ideas. I think if they're steered in the right direction by a person with my compassion, love for the people, I think I could give it to them to hopefully they'll do the same in their future. So what do I see future for Six Guy Nation is we were bonded. I think if everybody really understands that what we've been through together is that solidified our, our love for one another, our compassion, our need for one another and to accept all the gifts and cherish them. And one day, if you ever have a chance to assist, do the same. How can we save our people? That's what it's all about, saving one another. And that's what the human race is, climate change, saving one another. That's right, absolutely. And finding those blessings along the way. Yeah, for sure. Warren's experience with the flood was both unique and yet also a combined reality of the Siksika community. While it was disastrous, they found strength together to rebuild. I still can't believe how long it took for everyone to get back into permanent homes. Yeah, it's crazy how long it took and how none of this was really covered by the media. But it shows how strong the community is. Next is a discussion with registered nurse and Siksika community member, Giselle Smith. Giselle Smith is the former team leader for Siksika Health, who in 2013 shared the responsibility of handling the flood. Giselle talks about resiliency and how the community dealt with the challenges presented by the flood. So Giselle, let's start off by you introducing yourself. Tell me who you are, where you're from, um, what, what you do for work. My name's Giselle, and I'm a registered nurse. I was raised by my grandparents from Siksika. Went to school on reserve, and then my grandparents sent me to school off reserve. And that's when I chose to become a nurse to help my community. So what were you doing for work before the flood and during the flood? Like you said you were working at Siksika Health when the flood happened. I was, so I was um, the team leader for community health. That was pretty much, I've always taken care of the community and the flood just helped me take care of the community more with support from other departments. So what was your life, your home life like when the flood happened? Um, I had three girls at home and my husband. Work consumed most of my life during the flood. Okay, so what, where were you when the flood happened, when you first heard about the flood? Actually, when the flood happened, um, I was at work with another co-worker. We were staying late, and we weren't aware of what was actually happening outside until um, we started getting, well, I started receiving emails from 
different departments from the emergency department, Tom Littlechild, and then um, as well from Health Canada that the flood was actually happening. Okay, and so what happened? Like, what did you see? I remember actually taking that time with a coworker to um, Chicago to see the site, like to actually see what happened. And it was like, it was sad. It was really, there were no words. Sorry, Chicago. Chicago um, in Sixka. That's where part of the flood um, hit, which was nearest to the health center. It was sad. It was really sad to see our communities displaced, to have nothing, to have lost their homes, to have lost all their belongings, their memories with pictures, everything. It was, it was sad. It was a disruption. It was, there was a lot of sorrow and sadness, definitely. So what happened when the flood hit? Like what, with Sixaga, like were you guys, I don't know, did you receive help? Like how was the community? How did you guys respond? When the flood hit, Sixaga was on its own. We heard about the flood in High River. We heard about the flood in Calgary, and we we heard about the response. Six ago was on its own. Thankfully, I was at work, so I was able to help it to respond. But it was the emergency department that responded to the flood victims and helping them help rescue them. Because although the uh, communication went out to evacuate a lot of people didn't evacuate um, when they should have and that put the um, emergency department crew at risk as well because then they were out trying to rescue everybody yeah I I actually so I remember the flood and tell this day like we still take time to remember the damage that it caused because it did cause a lot of damage for houses in Calgary and surrounding areas we the response though was so like everyone helped each other within Calgary and you know it was on the news it was in your face like everyone knew what was going on but I don't really remember hearing about Six Saga. what was the emergency response for your community we had a very very uh, I think we responded to the flood really well and again that's because of the emergency department and the crisis response so you know there was no outside help other than Health Canada environmental health I remember the office uh, environmental health officers coming at like 3 30 in the morning to help us respond because the the flood took out our water uh, treatment center or water treatment plants and so of course six had no water which is important so they responded very quickly they were there they're right by our side okay and as far as the government um I don't I can honestly say I don't really remember anybody else other than six departments I remember the meeting I remember going into the meeting with all the team leaders so for me uh, well senior managers and so for me for six health it was Tom little child was um, responding to the emergency and then Tyler and then each department's senior manager I remember the chief at the time that was there 
And I'll never forget his words because he said when we we're going doing a round table of like what needed to happen and everything and we looked to the chief and he said you guys are the experts and nobody is to get in the way. And I think that's why I think that's why we responded so well is because the chief did not allow anybody to get into the way of us responding or you know getting in those um, middle management um, you know, micromanaging, all of that stuff, nothing was interfering with how we needed to respond. So who helped? Who helped you guys clean up? Who helped the emergency, like, keep everyone safe? Who was all involved? All the departments, like, so housing, public works, Six Health, uh, and, you know, it was everybody, everybody was involved. So every department and every senior manager and, and their, their teams were all involved. So, yeah, so the chief allowed us to do our work and did not interfere and did not allow any, any outside interference from us doing our job. So as the team leader, how did you guys manage to work with the families that were affected? Our response was definitely for safety, so that's why they had their uh, emergency crew out rescuing um, families. We set up the Sportsplex. Uh, Sportsplex was our like emergency relief site, so everybody was, um, you know, brought there. We had cots set up, we had nurses, we had ambulance we had everybody set up there and that was our command center as well so everybody that was displaced was brought there some went to family to other homes and some you know went different places Um, some camped out in different areas you know because we were just responding as quickly as we could it came to the point where you know everybody's displaced so what do we do and some were camped out, and then there was more storms coming, you know, and it became a safety. So we needed to find out where everybody was so we can track um, what was happening in the community. And eventually that's when the government of, Ca- of Alberta came in and um, also helped. Oh, wow. Okay, that, that's a lot of work. <laughs> but you guys really, you guys really came together and figured it out. Everything else was going happening around us and I think Sixka was responding really well as far as like the emergency crisis part of it. As soon as that was lifted, that's when the emergency response team was pretty much like, you know, no longer in, you know, control. It's it was more under like the government of Alberta and INAC and um, which is Indian Affairs, they came into play, right? Because to for the displaced families and like funding and all of that stuff, we weren't getting that media attention like in High River like, and in Calgary. I mean, they had the military, they had everybody, you know, resp- um, responding in those areas. And so we were kind of off to the side, forgotten. Like when it finally let down, they of course, assessed everywhere, right? And um, and they realized that Sixka was also in crisis, but we managed it on our own. How many families or like homes were hit? Do you know, like an estimate? 
So Six Sigma Health, uh, Six Sigma Health took the lead in that at, in the beginning. So what we did is, um, because we worked with the environmental health officers who went into the homes and actually said whether they were, you know, they coded them, whether they were black, red, yellow, or green. Green meaning the, is the best, like that they were still repairable. And black meaning they were like, they were no good. The homes were no, not repairable. So there was approximately 280, between 250 300 homes that were affected. Some homes had 10 people in the home, some had two. Once we, once we were able to um, assess the damage in all the homes that were damaged, we actually put together data. That was a lot of work. Um, and seeing whether, like their level, like of whether they were elders, whether they had um, health issues, whether they had children, and then we started prioritizing them. And then we had to, they had to get into hotels. So some of them that were living, that would go and stay with family. So if you have a family of 10 that go and stay with a, with a, uh, another house, like a family member, and there's five, then you have 15 people in the home. So that was also a risk. We had to consider all of those things. So just assessing everything. It took a while um, um, for, it took a like, couple of weeks before we kind of, you know, figured out what was, you know, happening with the homes and like, where everybody was and how many people were actually affected and then meeting their health needs. Some lost their um, dentures, their uh, glasses, their medications. So we had to like, so those are our immediate concerns. And then, you know, they were, they were at the, um, Sportsplex, the command center, and then, um, they were put into hotels in Strathmore. And eventually it took a while, like a long time before we got the ATCO trailers where family were just put into one room, you know, it, they were very, you know, isolated, very small living quarters. As far as uh, leadership, we all met on a weekly basis or more with the government as well to go over the needs of the community. And we'd work together to um, strategize to meet the needs of the community. There was definitely a lot of, like, a lot of things to deal with, you know, a lot of things. So almost 10 years later, what... I mean, those homes were destroyed, right? And people were displaced, new homes were built. What, what are the effects that still linger today in Siksiga? What are the effects that you guys still feel from the flood? People lost everything, like everything. Even health-wise, that stress, people lost family members during that time when they were displaced. The stress on people and sickness and illness. Um, you know, we also had like, you know, if you're living in small quarters, you know, of course, communicable disease is higher, you know, like flu, things like that, you know. You, Sixka responded so well. You guys really took care of each other during that time. Is there anything you would have changed? I think Sixka's gained um, from it, regardless of losing everything that they, you know, and all that they have gone through and all the hardships, we have gained so much wisdom and knowledge of how to respond. And so if any future emergencies and response, we're gonna get better. Yes, I definitely think that the flood showed the community what Sixika is capable of, right? 
So, I mean, yes, it was a devastating event that happened, but you guys were able to walk away from that crisis and walk away stronger and more knowledgeable. So what are your hopes for the future? I guess it's just being prepared. I think our next generation, resiliency, um, they've been through a lot. Um, they've overcome it. We've all overcome it together. So I guess that resiliency. During her position, Giselle's responsibility was caring for those affected by the flood. With limited government interference, Siksika Nation flood victims pulled together through the help of the community. Thanks for listening to Weathering the Storm, stories of climate crisis from Alberta and around the world. I'm Shawana Backfat. And I'm Amy Osnes. This series is powered by Shaw and a part of the community podcast initiative based out of Mount Royal University. It was produced on the lands that are home to the Nitsitapi, Iyahe Nakoda, Tsutina, and Métis people. We recognize the stewards of these lands, and we hope to contribute to a better understanding of our environment by sharing the stories of those affected by climate change. Special thanks to our partner, the Climate Disaster Project, and to Warren Drunkenchief and Giselle Smith for joining us. You can learn more about the Climate Disaster Project at climatedisasterproject.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show to hear the latest episodes and discover new podcasts from the Community Podcast Initiative at thepodcaststudio.ca. Thank you.